Hello, I am Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Nihal Al-Hadi in Toronto. Welcome to The Conversation Weekly. Nahal, the latest UN climate change report came out last week. Give us a two-word summary. We're doomed. <laughs> we are on the brink of catastrophe yet again until we do something about it. We basically live on this catastrophic brink, don't we, these days? But I, I found one thing kind of interesting in this year's report. Uh, a lot of focus on actions, right? It's the era of let's do something because we're not preventing this crisis, which is already here. It's not even in the future anymore. Yeah, it is all about taking action. But who's supposed to be taking action here? Is it us? Is it governments? Is it organizations? Who's the we that needs to act on climate change right now? I think most people would say everyone, you know, but saying everyone needs to do something doesn't actually help anyone feel motivated. But one area of action that I decided to dig into for this episode are these climate innovation prizes. These are these prizes where organizations or individuals give out these sums of money and there's competitions and galas and balls and they select winners and it's a whole thing. And I kind of always wondered what's going on with these prizes. Have you ever followed or paid much attention to these, Nahal? So I, I see the news releases or I, I read articles about them, but I have often wondered what exactly is it that they do? Like, I see the announcement, but I don't get a lot of news about the results. That is a great question, and exactly what I was wondering, too. Like, what is the point of these prizes? Are they useful? To whom? That question of what do these climate innovation prizes do is exactly what we're going to dig into in this episode today. We talk a lot about climate change on this podcast, and we wanted to focus on solutions. And these prizes set themselves up to be one of these means of producing solutions. So to get us started today, I wanted to reach out to someone who knows a little bit about their history. I'm uh, David Reiner. I'm a professor of technology policy here at the University of Cambridge. I'm also an assistant director of the Energy Policy Research Group at Cambridge. And I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, energy and climate, and particularly how we can deploy a lot more climate-friendly technologies than we are at the moment. David started by telling me the story of the first innovation prize. There's this lovely book by uh, David Sobel called Longitude. And it talks about this first effort in the early 18th century. So I think it started around 1714, 15. So it was actually trying to find a clock that would be viable on a ship. So presumably you track your time and your rate, you know exactly where you are on the map in theory. Yeah. And so you wanted something that would essentially remain accurate. So a clock that would stay accurate, mm -hmm. you know, you go and come back, right? And then if you <laughs> are wrong, then that does kind of big implications for navigation and so on. And so that's why there was this kind of interest in having a prize or a way of incentivizing somebody to come up with a clock. And in fact, I think British Parliament was petitioned by a range of mariners who were complaining that they were losing lots of ships and lots of men at the time because they weren't able to understand where they were, get back in one piece. And so there was a prize launch. I think it was 20,000 pounds. So I think it's something north of a million, million and a half pounds okay. today. So close to $2 million. Which again, particularly if we think of the 18th century, there was no science funding, right? Mm -hmm. there, <laughs> there wasn't a research infrastructure. The government really didn't fund science. 
the contest was actually run for a number of years, hmm. I think 15, 20 years, and didn't actually have any successful entries. And it wasn't until this uh, guy named John Harrison came along. By then, it was, I think, closer to the 1730s when he kind of came up with what was originally a very large clock and then turned into this lovely, elegant version. And I don't think he ever got the full 20,000 pounds, but he did in the end get a good chunk of that, (laughs) or at least a chunk of that, and he got more than anybody else did in the process. And so he's now recognized as the first prize winner. In the last 15 years, prizes for innovation have come back into fashion among the rich and powerful of the world, starting with Richard Branson's Virgin Earth Prize, which launched back in 2007. The Earthshot Prize is funded by a whole consortium of mostly foundations, Bezos, Bloomberg, uh, the Aga Khan, Jack Ma, so the kind of a range of charitable foundations from many of these very wealthy billionaires. And the XPRIZE, uh, Elon Musk and the Musk Foundation gave $100 million hmm. for um, gigaton-scale carbon removal. But David notes that unlike back in the 18th century when the Longitude Prize was offered, today's prizes are offered alongside many other sources of available funding. If you would be an inventor today or an innovator, this would be just one of many opportunities that you might have, right? So I think it's important to kind of recognize that you know, Harrison didn't have a lot of other options (laughs) available in the 18th century, right? Whereas, you know, today, you would be thinking about, well, if you're based at a university, first of all, there's already kind of an existing research infrastructure. And you might think, okay, well, can I get a bit of funding from the department? Or can I get a small grant from a science foundation? Can I get maybe a small angel investor, somebody to give me $100,000 to get an idea off the ground, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So I might have that idea in the lab and I'll see, okay, well, how can I build on that? You know, so there would be a number of pathways that you might be able to take. And, you know, the prize could well be one of them, particularly for those working in energy and climate. There are a number of them that are now available. And so that might potentially be, you know, appealing as a nice slug of money. That money absolutely can be a huge help to an individual prize-winning innovator or researcher. But there's a question of whether it actually does more for the donor. It's fair to wonder whether the positive media attention garnered for the prize giver outweighs the impact that the winning innovation has on climate change. Is this kind of just a greenwashing shtick? And according to David, there is in fact some basis for that cynicism. The cautionary tale in all this (laughs) is the Virgin Earth Prize. Hmm. And that was launched around about 2007 by Richard Branson. And that was meant to be for $25 million or pounds, I can't remember. And they narrowed it down within, I think, four years to 11 finalists. And what was the kind of goal of the prize? Similar idea to the Musk Prize, which is permanent CO2 removal from the atmosphere. And a number of the companies that actually are still doing this work, like Climeworks and and Carbon Engineering and so on, which are involved in direct air capture, were kind of in their early days, and they were highlighted as part of this in 2011. And I'm not sure anybody knows the exact story, but (laughs) around about 2019, they just discontinued it. 
Huh. So they never ended up awarding this prize. You know, the Richard Bransons of the world, Elon Musk of the world, get a lot of attention for being very generous yes. and, and endowing these prizes. And then the question, though, is, well... Yeah, do they work, right? And I guess there's a question I want to ask you that, right? Because there's the two parts to this. Do these work to promote innovation and technology and development and have we gotten solutions out of them? And then there's also the secondary question, which you alluded to, which is... Are they more just kind of some greenwashing PR stunt that looks great and everyone gets to go to a big ball and wear their suits and get on the news and say, hey, I'm going to save the world, whether or not it actually pans out? So um, speak to both of those questions. First of all, as someone who studies funding policy and science policy, do these prizes have a measurable beneficial impact on whatever they're trying to solve? Well, it depends what you mean by measurable, right? Because again, the amounts that we're talking about, which sound like a lot, are really a drop in the ocean compared to the billions that are available through capital markets, through mm -hmm. venture capital, through research funding. Sure. So, you know, at that level, I think it's difficult to say that it's anywhere near much more than kind of a, a very small, interesting, <laughs> but not particularly important aspect of the landscape. On the other hand, from a media <laughs> perspective, from a public attention perspective, uh, you know, it does quite well, right? And might get a lot of attention in a way that the more conventional approaches do not. Hmm. So from traditional metrics, or kind of the most easily observable metrics, you would say, okay, well, we're pouring, you know, literally billions, say, in climate tech Sure. Investments, right? We're pouring billions through our research funds at the national level, government's funding of research. And this is on the order of, you know, tens, hundreds of millions, which is, you know, if, <laughs> if you get the prize, if you get the award, then obviously that's kind of a huge boon to you. Sure. But in the grand scheme of things, eh. it, it's, it, it's small, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So again, from you know, what does $100 million mean to Elon Musk, right? A talking point for him, a <laughs> dinner conversation, and maybe at least when he did it a couple of years ago, kind of a, <laughs> a way of greening his reputation. It's a little bit of a sign of how the world has changed when hundreds of millions of dollars can be essentially pocket change for someone. But it also is kind of indicative of how the nature of discovery has changed, right, Nahal? You can't just be one person sitting in a garage somewhere tinkering away and make some revolutionary discovery. It just doesn't work like that anymore. It takes large institutions and bodies of research and collaboration and interconnectedness all over the world and a ton of money to make anything happen these days. The causes and effects of climate change are really complex, so it makes sense that the nature of research has to change in order to address these complex roots and effects. You have all of these different institutions putting money into finding solutions, governments, corporations, private foundations, international organizations. But where do the prizes fit in? That's a great question. As David was saying, they're very small amounts of money, relatively speaking. So are they effective? And what does effective even mean in this context? To compare this larger body of climate research and funding with these prizes, I reached out to Abbas Abdul, who works as a research fellow at the Science Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex in the UK, because he's someone who really understands how science is funded at the largest of scales. My work basically involves transformative innovation policy, focus on those technology innovations 
on energy system, transport system, industrial decarbonization, and climate change adaptation. So I look at all those technology innovations that are changing the dynamics of those four sectors. Abbas is studying how funding has been allocated across these sectors for the past 30 years. What kind of drove a lot of your research and what we're interested in is we have a limited amount of money, a limited amount of a lot of stuff, but how are we most effective with funding research to stave off climate change, essentially? So when you were thinking about effectiveness, how were you measuring that? And how do people in your field generally, and ideally, how do funders think about effectiveness and what makes for a good project to fund? One of the great considerations for funders is to look at what we call research with impact. So they want to see what kind of potential impact your research proposal tend to be. So is it in the development of the technology? Is it in deployment? Is it the diffusion of the technology that is involved? So what has the potential impact? So that determines if your research proposal is going to be funded or not. So many criteria has been developed in order to examine and screen research proposals to look at what are the kind of impact and what are the various stakeholders that are involved. Abbas says that one of the main criteria funders often consider is whether a proposal brings together researchers from across different scientific disciplines. There must be interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, and cross-disciplinary research whereby you bring other set of experts together into a certain project to work together and find a common ground and a common solution. So this is kind of the factor that determines the potential impact your research proposal might likely have. And invariably, that gives a kind of opportunity to see if your research is going to be funded or not. Still, Abbas says he sees less money going to areas that could have a big impact, but are unpopular for political reasons. One great example he gave is the conversion to electric vehicles. 26% of CO2 emission is from transportation. So if renewable energy technology are adopted in that sector, which means there's going to be drastic reduction in consumption of fossil fuels. So, of course, the countries, you know, the highest producer or highest exporter of hydrocarbons also will be skeptical politically. The economy also depends on that. So this is kind of the politics also in adapting mm-hmm. some, you know, some of those technology. You know, then there's difficulty in adopting and also in deploying some of these already available technologies out there. Yeah, it sounds like we we're missing some stuff here in terms of the funding structure. Basically, the thrust of this episode is really to kind of understand the role of these innovation prizes. Have you found that these are effective at filling this gap, or are they just kind of feeding the same well-funded kind of research area? They are actually filling the gap. Absolutely, they are filling. They are. Yes, they are, because some of the funded research so far has shown that we already have solutions. There are so many solutions out there. Then again, you have companies, countries also, you know, very reluctant in adopting technology because those countries have high deposit of hydrocarbon or who are the largest exporter of hydrocarbon Mm -hmm. will be reluctant in adopting and deployment of this technology. So these are also some of the politics and geopolitics of climate change. And you're saying these kind of awards are all, yeah, that's research money, but because they're flashy, it kind of brings in a little bit of the politics as well, which is obviously just as important. Is that kind of what you're saying here? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a kind of politics in it. Another way these prizes fill gaps in the traditional funding landscape is by funding innovators who live and work in developing nations, particularly island nations and those in the global south. There's another part of my study who also look into marginalization of climate change research. So where you have most of the funding 
and the funded research domicile within the global north. So you have the country from the global north, from the US, the UK, the European Union, Canada, Australia, dominating research. And when you're talking about adaptation, we are looking about those countries of, you know, highland states, Samoa, Bangladesh, you know, many countries in Africa, Papua New Guinea, which are also countries of highland states that are very, very much vulnerable. So in terms of adaptation, these countries need more adaptation. You also see research in adaptation that have been led by researchers and funded by institutions from the global north, funded by US or funded by the UKIR, funded by European Union. So if there's certain fund or certain money which need to be put into research, then I will advise that in order to make it effective, National Research Foundation of US or UK Research and Innovation can actually have this money and coordinate research, working together with researchers and research funding organizations within these countries in Africa and also in the you know, small highland states to fund those, te- those research that has to do with climate adaptation and resilience. Hmm. And it makes sense, right? Like researchers in the U.S. have a very different set of goals and conditions they're working with versus someone in hmm. Papua New Guinea or something. Does that really happen much? Do you see National Science Foundation money from the U.S. flowing to research universities in other countries much, or does it all stay pretty much within the it's national ma- borders? It's majorly, majorly stays in the national border. Majorly, it stays within the U.S. Canada and the UK are beginning to fund some projects in Africa, and Abbas would love to see that trend continue and also see US and the EU get involved. And it's not simply about the money, although it's certainly good for economically developing nations, it's really about leveraging innovative ideas from all over the world to find the best solutions to climate change. So we're looking into developed world, countries in the global north, mostly those countries with highest carbon emission, looking into how to fund research in Africa, in countries of small highland states, in countries of Southeast Asia. That will also be a very good opportunity to find global solutions because climate change doesn't have a boundary. It can cross over you know, any continent. So countries of the US and you know, other global north countries can begin to look at how do we put enormous amount of money into Africa into Southeast Asia, into countries of smaller high state to fund research. Empower also researchers from global south. That would also be a very good opportunity. Create a kind of research collaboration opportunity for those researchers to have an incremental impact. Governmental change tends to be slow. That's why one of the benefits of climate innovation prizes like the Earthshot Prize is that they offer opportunities for innovators from the global south to start making an impact now. The most important thing I need to emphasize is how do we decolonize climate change and energy research? Because currently, countries in Southeast Asia, countries in small highland states, many countries in Africa are still very marginalized in terms of receiving you know, research into climate change and energy system. So this is also kind of what is currently happening and which we need to look at any opportunity to change narrative. All right. So they kind of address the power dynamic where the places most affected by climate change are the least responsible for it. But this feels like a mixed bag to me. On one hand, you have researchers who are now able to pursue the research that they want to pursue where they've been excluded from other funding sources. And that's the part that feels a bit disingenuous. Wouldn't it be more effective to network different research programs or just provide funding in general rather than make it this exceptional event where they have to win money to pursue their research? 
Nahal, I completely agree. It feels a little weird to be funding these ideas or researchers when they should just be involved in the traditional funding mechanisms from the beginning. And that kind of points to a system that maybe needs some changing. And the next researcher I spoke to actually considers the strength of these prizes, not really necessarily the amounts of money they're giving out, but in the way that they can change systems or change political agendas or change social ideas. In the sense, he considers them a PR tool for climate change as much as he considers them a funding tool. So the Earthshot Prize is a way of making sure that solutions get the bit of a razzmatazz. This is, of course, with a blessing of the royal family here in the UK. It has lots of celebrities involved, and it's a way of actually raising the profile. My name is Mark Mazen. I'm a professor of Earth System Science at University College London here in the UK. I study climate change in the past, the present, and the future. Mark was a scientific consultant and fact-checker for the BBC's scripted award show for the Earthshot Prize. His job was to go through the scripts and basically fact-check many things science related to the shortlisted potential prize winners. So the Earthshot Prize is five million pounds of funding and there are five prizes and each group get one million pounds and the idea is that they select ideas that are new novel cutting edge but will solve a particular issue in climate change or at least the way i see it signal that that's the direction that industry or a particular area should be moving and i think what's really interesting is the timing of it this year because they had the big COP meeting, the climate conference in Egypt. And what usually happens is there's this tailing off of interest in climate change after that. Everybody gets excited, lots of media, and then... Ugh. But what happened was then the Earthshot Prize decided that they would go after this to try and keep the momentum, keep the interest in the media and in the public's eye that actually climate change is something that we have to deal with every single day of the year. That's a message, right? Yes. That's not an action. That's not a thing. That's a message. And would yes. you say that a big part of the Earthside Prize is messaging? Oh, absolutely. And again, that's why it's a million pounds. It's not 999. Yeah. You know, it's because it's messaging. It is, it is a little bit of razzmatazz. And it basically says, guess what? Solving climate change is cool. <laughs> and this is something that hasn't actually happened until very recently. Like electric cars, I hate to say this, electric cars up until a certain point were ugly. I mean, if you mm -hmm. had an electric car, you were torturing yourself because you were trying to be worthy. Now, I hate to say this, you look at a test and you go, oh, I want one. I don't care. I, I don't care what's agree. running it. I don't care. I just want one yeah. of those because it looks good. And that's what the Earthshot Prize and the other prizes are doing. It's saying, well, of course you want climate change solutions because, do you know what? They make life better and they're really super cool. And so it's a really top-line messaging. I mean, if you have all these celebrities, you go, oh, okay, I want a little bit of that magic. So I think the first thing is messaging. Second thing is they're focusing people on particular technologies. So the idea is, well, do we need all this plastic? 
I mean, don't get me wrong. We all know that plastics are incredible. They've been really useful, you know. Uh, but can we actually have alternatives? Because guess what? The plastics are collecting in our rivers, in our oceans. We also know that microplastics have been found in human blood. You know, it's like, oh, perhaps that's bad. Okay, can we go to some natural solutions? So, for example, they had the seaweed packaging. I also know there's some fantastic boxes now that are being picked up by supermarkets which are made from mushrooms. You know, so can we think of it in a different way? And I think that's really important. Mark completely agreed with the point Abbas made earlier about these prizes serving a really important role in communities in developing nations. They also are supporting local communities. And I think that was really important as well. One of the prizes was this incredible woman in Kenya who designed a new cookstove. Okay, and this basically was making it much safer because her own daughter had at a very young age kicked over the cook store and been badly burnt. And the mother went, this is madness. Why, why is this happening? It also, because they're so much more efficient, they can actually cut down on carbon emissions. But it's a local, and, and that's the great thing is they're not saying, look at this big corporation and what they do. They're going, look at this woman in Kenya making a difference. These are the things we should support. So it's also about supporting community, supporting new ideas in the culture and in the community where it works. And so it's also about trying to find the right solutions for the right places. And they're very good at showing that and saying, look, just because you think these countries are full of poor people, actually, they're really smart. And actually, they have solutions that they can help themselves if we give them a bit of help, but they can also help us as well. And I think that cross-cultural thing that these prizes embrace is also really good. And we get to this question again of whether these innovation prizes are really making significant progress in the fight against climate change that warrants all of the celebrations and TV coverage and all of this stuff, or whether it's more PR than anything else. And compared to a boss, Mark is slightly less cynical. He sees these prizes as a way for billionaires and celebrities to affect change by using their outsized voices and platforms to highlight solutions to the climate crisis. Well, I think that we are seeing a large number of people who have been highly successful, whether it's in business, whether it's just their birthright, or whether it happens to be because they're incredible artists, seeing that they actually care about the world around them, they actually are listening to the youth who are saying, I'm really sorry, guys, you've really messed this up. Could you stop and could you reverse this? So I think there's all of that going on. And yes, the prizes alone will not actually change anything, okay? Because what we need is to get rid of fossil fuels from the energy mix as soon as possible. What does that require? major government initiatives. It needs governments to regulate, to incentivize, to tax, and allow us to move to renewables as quick as possible. And that's great, but how do you incentivize people to vote the right way? How do you incentivize governments to go, oh, yes, that's a vote winner. Let's have a bit of razzmatazz. So I get the feeling that the prizes, of course, won't solve climate change. Okay, it's a huge problem that we're going to be struggling to deal with over the next couple of decades. However, 
they are providing a little bit of sort of enthusiasm, a little bit of positiveness, because I think what we've lacked, and this is where my messaging has changed, is that 10 years ago, it's all doom, doom, doom. Now it's like, okay, guys, we've got the message. It's doom. <laughs> right. Yeah. What can we do about it? Changing that message is actually a little trickier and more nuanced than it might seem. I think that many of these prizes, many of these events are highly political with a small p, okay? Mm. Because it is incredibly difficult to have one of those and then turn around and go, by the way, we just want to say the whole economic system, which this TV show is based <laughs> on, is wrong. <laughs> you know, there, there, yeah. there is, yeah. again, we do need systemic change. We need changes in how the economics is run. We need systemic change about how people live their lives. And those radical changes are being discussed, but it's very difficult when you're putting on a show. And the reason why the BBC asked me to actually check the scripts is because the whole show was put on by the BBC Light Entertainment Unit. Now, they're brilliant. Huh. I mean, they're, they're the ones that do Strictly Come Dancing. You know, it wasn't the science unit. So it's interesting how it's in different parts of the media as well. The fact that it was the light entertainment unit, that sums up a lot of the kind of like discussion we've been circling here, Absolutely. right? And pluses and minuses, right? Of the course. same people watching the light entertainment section are not going to be the same people that are digging into the science and maybe they need the messaging a little bit more. Well, I think that's one of the most interesting things is how the media and entertainment work within society. And what you want is you want things to just gently slip in. So you want soap operas to be discussing the climate crisis, but you don't want to do it in a preachy way. You just It's just something there. Okay, we've, we've seen this with the LGBT community and it seeps into everyday TV, such as sort of like soap operas, news programs, you know, it just gets in there because it is part of the society and the fabric of discussion. And so if we can start to get things like climate change, the environmental issues into that, that's absolutely fine. Particularly if they're not stereotypical characters going, well, we have to save the planet. It's like, no, could you just have the mother basically worrying about her kids in a soap opera going, I really do spend a lot of my time worrying about the world that my poor kids are going to inherit. Bing, ding, wow. That will probably have more effect than me standing up and writing a conversation article, you know. <laughs> I will look past Mark's point that soap operas are more influential than the conversation, but fundamentally, I do agree with what he's saying here. If we as a species are going to adapt and find solutions to a climate-changed world, people need to be on board, broadly speaking. And these prizes are an effective way at spreading the message that change is both necessary and possible and part of the cultural fabric of this moment in history. And I'm going to give the last word to David here. If you think about climate, it is incredibly difficult. You know, people talk about it as a wicked problem. You know, it's just this incredibly difficult problem that we need to almost fundamentally rethink the way we <laughs> approach our economy, approach our society. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so large and systemic. We're sort of overwhelmed by there's so many things that we need to do. 
it's not easy. I mean, I think it kind of <laughs> like dealing with the climate in general, you know, innovation funding is there's no magic bullet, there's no secret sauce. And so if anything, I think what prizes do is provide another vehicle, another avenue to think about how we might both direct funding to the worthwhile bits of the ecosystem, but also, I think maybe as importantly, kind of inspire and encourage the next generation. That is it for this episode. Thank you so much to all of the academics we spoke to this week, David Reiner, Abbas Abdul, and Mark Maslin. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. And if you like The Conversation Weekly, go check out The Conversation's new limited podcast series on climate called Fear and Wonder, as well as our other limited series, Great Mysteries of Physics. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced and written by Katie Flood. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sarl. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media. Soraya Nandy does our transcripts. And Men Marawani is the show's executive producer. I am Dan Marino. And I'm Nihal Al-Hadi. Thank you for listening.